Bogey, are you going to make any more pictures with Houston? Yes, we have a project in mind. Until you get up the money, it's always called a project. <laughs> the Man Who Would Be King by Rudyard Kipling, which I think John wants to shoot in India, some inaccessible part of India, probably the most inaccessible part because he likes to shoot where it's almost impossible to shoot. If he could get a camera on top of Mount Everest, he'd have one there, believe me. <laughs> well, what matters to you most in this business of movie making? Principally, uh, making good pictures, and I'm not angered if they make money because I don't hold with everybody that a thing isn't good if it makes money. I believe that it can be good and also make money. I think good pictures matter to me a lot. As the 1940s got underway, bringing the U.S. closer to World War II, Humphrey Bogart drifted socially and professionally. That year he made four films, Virginia City, It All Came True, Brother Orchid, and They Drive By Night. On Sunday, January 7, 1940, at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time over CBS, he reprised his role of Duke Mantee in a Screen Guild Theater adaptation of The Petrified Forest. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Your neighborhood good golf dealer and the Gulf Oil Companies welcome you to the Gulf Theater the one place where you meet all your favorite stars. Tonight, we bring you Joan Bennett, Tyrone Power, Humphrey Bogart, and of course, Oscar Bradley and his golf orchestra. And now, the director of the Gulf Theater and your host, Roger Pryor. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, I've taken advantage of my job as director of the Gulf Theater to bring you one of my favorite plays, Robert Sherwood's The Petrified Forest. Four years ago, it played to packed houses on Broadway. And it was four years ago that Joan Bennett was making her first big hit in private worlds. Tyrone Power was an unknown youngster taking his first screen test in New York, and Humphrey Bogart was on Broadway. An outstanding success in the very play we're doing tonight. If you listen closely to tonight's play, you'll hear the same warning that audiences crowding into a New York theater heard four years ago. A warning of what has since happened to the world. When the author of that play, Robert Sherwood, the celebrated American dramatist, heard that we wanted to do the petrified forest here in the Gulf Theater, he gave us permission to present the play without cost, because he knows that the Gulf Theater is really the star's own theater. He knows that every cent that Gulf would ordinarily give to the stars who appear here is given instead to help meet the needs of the Motion Picture Relief Fund and to build a home for the less fortunate members of the industry. And now, on with the play. Lights! Music! Curtain! The Screen Guild Theater drew several Hollywood stars a week for radio adaptations, first taking to the air on January 8, 1939 for Gulf Oil. All fees that would normally go to stars instead were given to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. This money was used to build and maintain the Motion Picture Country House, 40 bungalow units for housing aging and needy film stars. By the summer of 1942, almost $800,000 had been raised. This episode's rating was a 13. Roughly 9 million listeners tuned in. Falcon claps his wings, no wit for grief but noble heart held high. With loud glad noise he stirs himself and springs, and takes his meat and towards his lair draws nigh. Hi, Gabby. 
Oh, hello, Bo. How about a little kiss, honey? Oh, stop annoying me, will you? Can't you see I'm reading? Yeah, reading that pash poetry and listening to some sticky orchestra on the radio. That's all you ever do. What else is there to do in this godforsaken desert? Plenty safe. If you'd only pay a little attention to me, I could show you I'm things I'm really that... not interested. Why don't you stay outside and take care of the garage? That's what Dad hired you for. Oh, now listen, honey, I'm not as terrible as you think. I'm just a big guy with a good heart and plenty of red blood, and I'm full of love, baby. Ah, oh, gee, you're a beautiful kid. Ah, oh, Bose, don't. Bose, look out. Someone's coming. Good evening. Ah, uh, good evening. What can we do for you? Can I order something to eat? Yeah, yeah, sure. There's a menu. Miss Maple will take your order. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm going out in the garage now, honey. But I'll be back. And while you're at it, you might tell Graham to come in and get us supper. Okay, baby. Ready to order, sir? Oh, yes. I'll have, uh, this hamburger special and some beer. You'd better bring me a double portion. I'm quite hungry. Driven far? Yes, quite a long way. But for the last ten miles, I've been walking. You mean you're just bumming along? Call it gypsying. You know, it's wonderful what progress you can make merely by power of the thumb. Where are you planning to go? That depends on where this road leads. It leads to the petrified forest. What's that? Oh, just a lot of dead old trees in the desert that have turned to stone. Sounds like a suitable place for me. Perhaps that's what I'm destined for. To be buried in the petrified forest. To become just another obsolete stump in the desert. <laughs> it's an interesting idea. I'm ready for my supper, Gabby. Okay, Grandpa. I'll tell Paula to fix it. You ought to be ready in a minute, sir. Thank you. Uh, like to see the evening paper while you're waiting for your food? Oh, thanks. You got the whole story about that Duke Mantee massacre. <laughs> got his picture, too. Huh. Six killed in Oklahoma City jailbreak as Duke Mantee escapes. Did he do all that? Yeah. <laughs> Books in town say he's headed this way, but I, I don't believe it. He's probably got over the Mexican border long ago. He doesn't look like a gangster, does he? He ain't no gangster. He's a real old-time desperado. Our gangsters is foreigners. Mantee's an American. He's a real killer, too. <laughs> I can tell. I know plenty of them in my day. Yes, sir. I come down into this desert 56 years ago, and believe me, my friend, things were different then. Yes, sir. Here you are, sir. Double hamburger special. Your supper's ready, Graham. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Well, I hope you enjoy your vittles, sir. Oh, thank you, sir. I hope you enjoy yours, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, that's a... Charming old gentleman, your grandfather? Yes. Say, you are hungry, aren't you? Well, you can go just so long without food, you Luck know. Luck been bad? Yes. What do you do? Do? Yes, for a living. Oh, nothing. That is, nothing just now. I have been at times a writer. Thinking of trying your luck in Hollywood? No. I'm afraid I'm neither good nor active enough a writer for that. But I suppose you hope to get into the movies? Me? Oh, no. I thought every beautiful girl had her heart set on Hollywood. Oh, that's just it. It's too common. I want to go to Bourg's. Where? Bourg's in France. That's where my mother lives. Oh. Is she French? Oh, yes. That's where Dad met her. It was during the war. He brought her back here, and she stuck it out in this desert as long as she could. Four years. Then she packed up and went back to Bourg's. She writes to me. And on my last birthday, she sent me this book. It's the poems of Francis Villain. Ever read it? Yes. It's wonderful poetry. Mother wrote in it, I'm our cher petite Gabrielle. That means to my dear little Gabrielle. She gave me that name. It's about the only French thing I've got. Gabrielle. That's a beautiful name. Wouldn't you know it get changed into Gabby by the ignorant dopes around here? So you share your mother's opinion of the desert? Uh-huh. 
But you can find solace in the poems of Francois Villon. Oh, yes. It takes the smell of hamburger out of my system. You know, that poetry's wonderful stuff. But that's the way the French people are. They can understand everything, like life and love and death. And they can enjoy it or laugh at it, depending on how they feel. It's plain to see you've never been to France. Take my word for it, Gabrielle. Stay here and avoid disappointment. What makes you think I'd be disappointed? I've been to France. I lived there for eight years. What were you doing, writing books? No, planning to write books. You see, I was living on my wife's money. Oh. Oh, please don't think too ill of me. I once actually wrote a book. Was it successful? Not very, no. It cost the publisher quite a lot of money, and it also cost him his wife. You see, she divorced him and married me. She had faith in me. She saw in me a major artist, profound but inarticulate. She believed that all I needed was background, and she gave it to me, with southern exposure and a fine view of the Mediterranean. For eight years, I reclined there on the Riviera, on my background, and I waited for the major artist in me to step forth and say something of enduring importance. He preferred to remain inarticulate. And you've left your wife now? I left at her suggestion. She had taken up with a Brazilian painter, also a major artist. There was nothing for me to do but travel. What were you looking for? Well, that's rather hard to say. I suppose I've been looking for something to believe in. I've been hoping to find something that's worth living for and dying for. What have you found? Nothing so interesting as a fair young lady who reads Villon and longs to go to Bourges. Are you kidding me? No, Gabrielle. I've never kidded anybody outside of myself. You shouldn't talk that way. I bet you could do wonderful things if you'd only try. Oh, don't delude yourself. My trouble is incurable. I belong to a vanishing race. I'm one of the intellectuals. That means you've got brains. I can see you have. Yes. Brains without purpose. Noise without sound. Shape without substance. Have you ever read The Hollow Men? It refers to the intellectuals who thought they'd conquered nature. And now... Do you realize what it is that is causing world chaos? No. Well, I'm probably the only living person who can tell you. It's nature hitting back. She's fighting us with strange instruments called neuroses. She's deliberately afflicting mankind with the jitters. Nature is proving that she can't be beaten, not by the likes of us. She's taking the world away from the intellectuals and giving it back to the apes. Huh? <laughs> Forgive me, Gabrielle, but I, I just can't tell you what a luxury it is to have someone to talk to. Incidentally, this beer is excellent. It's made in Phoenix. You know, you talk like an awful fool. I know it. No wonder your wife kicked you out. And no wonder she fell for you in the first place. That sounds alarmingly like a compliment. It is a compliment. What'd you say your name was? Alan Squire. I've been calling you Gabrielle, so you... You know, got... Alan, there's something about you that's very appealing. Appealing? Yes, that's been my downfall. I was just thinking, I'd like to go to France with you. Oh, no, Gabrielle. No, I could never retrace my footsteps. You mean you haven't enough money? <laughs> Even that is an understatement. Oh, don't worry about that. I've got plenty of money coming to me. Gramp has $22,000 sold it away in Liberty Bonds, and it's all will to me. I guess we could travel pretty far on that, couldn't we? Too far. We could go to France, and you'd show me everything. All the cathedrals and the art, and explain everything. Of course, we'd have to wait maybe years. But, well, I could have Bosford and give you the job tending the garage. That's a startling proposal, Gabrielle. I, I hadn't expected to receive anything like that in this desert. Wouldn't you like to be loved by me, Alan? Yes, Gabrielle. I should like to be loved by you. You think I'm attractive? There are better words than that for what you are. Then why don't we at least make a start at you? Haven't got anything else to do. No. No, that's just it. You couldn't live very long with a man who had nothing else to do but worship you. That's a dull kind of love, Gabrielle. 
It's the kind of love that makes people old too soon. But I, I thank you for the suggestion. And now I think I'd better go. Well, I, I can't stop you. No, Gabrielle, you can't. But you can do me one great favor before I go. Would you mind very much if I kissed you goodbye? No, I wouldn't mind. You'd understand that it would be nothing more. I'd than... understand. It'd be just a kiss. That's all. That's absolutely all. Aha! Uh -huh. That's what's been going on in here, necking, huh? I've been watching you through the window. Now lay off him, yeah, Bose. Just because she's sweet and sweet, you thought you could get fresh, huh? Well, I got a good mind to take Bose. you. Bose, Bose, there's a car. Oh, well, lucky thing for you, Mister. Come on, pay your check and get out. Well, that uh, brings us to another embarrassment. I haven't any money. No money? Well, of all the nerve. So you thought you could pay with a kiss, did you? You thought if you just... Bose, don't. All right, folks. Put up your hands and get over there against that counter. Come on, be quick about it. This guy here means business. He's Duke Manpete, a world-famous killer, and he's hungry. Who's in there? Well, only one old man and... My grandfather's in there and Paula the cook's in the kitchen. Bring him in, Jackie. Okay, Duke. Now, it's like this, folks. Me and the boys are going to park in here for a couple hours. The cops ain't likely to catch up with us tonight. So we can all be quiet and peaceable and have a few beers together and listen to the music. And not make any wrong moves. Because I may as well tell you folks that old Jackie there with a machine gun, he's feeling pretty nervous and jumpy. And he's got the itch between his fingers. So let's everybody stay where they are. <laughs> a moment before the curtain rises on act two of our play, The Petrified Forest. A moment in which we'd like to have our thoughts. In late 1940, John Huston was adapting a script for a new film, High Sierra. Produced by Mark Hellinger and directed by Raoul Walsh. Paul Mooney, George Raft, James Cagney, and Edward G. Robinson all turned down the lead role, much to the delight of Houston. The character gave Bogart the chance to show his range. Finally playing someone with depth, the film was Bogart's career breakthrough, transforming him from supporting player to leading man. He played opposite Ida Lupino. The film's success also led to a breakthrough for Houston, giving him the leverage needed to transition from screenwriter to director, setting Bogart up for Houston's next project, an adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon. The first picture I made with Humphrey Bogart was back some years before the war. It was The Maltese Falcon. I'd written a couple of pictures for Bogart before that, but only then, while we were making The Falcon, did I get to know him really well. The Maltese Falcon was Houston's directorial debut. Although a pre-code version of the film had been made 10 years earlier, the 1941 version with Bogart starring as private detective Sam Spade was considered an instant classic film noir. Complementing Bogart were co-stars Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, Mary Astor, and Elijah Cook Jr. Bogart's sharp timing and facial expressions were praised as vital to the film's quick action and hard-boiled dialogue. It was a commercial hit, and Bogart was unusually happy with the film. He later said, 
It's practically a masterpiece. I don't have many things I'm proud of, but that's one. The film was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Direction. Bogart reprised his role on the July 3, 1946 episode of Academy Award Theater. The House of Squibb presents Academy Awards. Every week, Squibb brings you Hollywood's finest. The great picture plays, the great actors and actresses. Techniques and skills chosen from the honor roll of those who have won or been nominated for the famous Golden Oscar of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And now, E.R. Squibb and Sons, manufacturing chemist to the medical profession since 1858, bring you the distinguished star, Mr. Humphrey Bogart, who, as Best Actor of the Year, was nominated for the 1943 Academy Award. You will also hear Miss Mary Astor, who won the 1941 Academy Award as Best Supporting Actress of the Year, and Sidney Greenstreet, who was nominated for the 1941 Academy Award as Best Supporting Actor. Tonight, Mr. Bogart, Miss Astor, and Mr. Greenstreet will play the famous roles they created for the screen in The Maltese Falcon, the thrilling mystery which was nominated as Best Production of the Year for the 1941 Academy Award. My name is Spade, Sam Spade. License number 357896, issued by the Police Department of San Francisco. Occupation, private detective, sometimes known as private eye. My files in the case of the Maltese Falcon are closed, but I've got the Maltese Falcon. I got it, and some dough. My partner got murdered, and a very slick chick went up for life. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> This slick dame comes to see me one day, gives me a song and dance about her sister and a guy called Floyd Thursby. She wants us to get her sister back before her mother and father get in from Hawaii. I put my partner, Miles Archer, on the case. At night, he gets murdered. And so does this guy, Thursby. I go round to the apartment where the dame is living, the one called Bridget O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> she had something I seemed to go for. Oh, uh, Mr. Spade, come in. I have come in. <laughs> oh, yes, so you have. Mr. Spade, tell me, am I to blame for last night? You warned us that Thursby was dangerous. Of course, you lied to us about your sister and all that, but that doesn't count. We didn't believe you. Oh, help me, Mr. Spade. I, I need help so badly. I've no right to ask you, but I do ask you. Help me. <laughs> you won't need much of anybody's help. You're good. You're awful good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and that throb you get into your voice when you say things like, help me, Mr. Spade. I deserve that. But, oh, the lie was in the way I said it, and, 
Not at all in what I said. If I'm going to help you, I've got to have some sort of a line on your Floyd Thursby. I met him in the Orient. We came here from Hong Kong last week. Did he kill Archer? Yes, certainly. Picked a nice sort of playmate. Only that sort could have helped me if... if he had been loyal. How bad a hole are you actually in? As bad as could be. Physical danger? I'm not heroic. I don't think there's anything worse than death. Then it's that. It's that as surely as we're sitting here. Unless you help me. Who killed Thursby? Your enemies or his? I don't know. Uh, His, I suppose. I'm afraid. I I don't know. Who are these enemies? Well, there's a small, dark man with white teeth and a smooth, dangerous, fat man. Oh, this is hopeless. Well, how much money have you got? I have about $500 left. Give it to me. There's only 400 here. I had to keep some to live on. Okay. I'll be back as soon as I can. You needn't come to the door with me. I can let myself out. I went by the office then and found a dark little guy with very white teeth waiting for me. His name was Joel Cairo. He was a Greek. Mr. Spade, I'm trying to recover an, an ornament that has been, shall we say, mislaid. I thought and hoped you could assist me. Uh-huh. The ornament is a statuette, the black figure of a bird. I'm prepared to pay the sum of $5,000 for its recovery, and no questions asked. 5000 is a lot of money. It's a very interesting figure. You will it... put your hands together at the back of your neck, Mr. Spade. Huh? Oh, sure. I shall shoot you if you try to stop me, Mr. Spade. But I must search your office. Well, you won't find anything but a pair of worn-out rubbers, a... Half pint of rum and a pack of chewing gum. We shall see. Please stand up. So. Sure. This way? No, the other way. Sure. I'll take the gun, Mr. Cairo. Now get up. I am very slow in things like that, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm still prepared to pay $5,000 for the return of the figure. Do you have it, Mr. Spade? No. If it is not here... Why did you just risk serious injury to prevent my searching for it? Well, I should sit around and let people come in and stick me up. You wish some assurance of my sincerity? A retainer? I might. Say, $100? You better make it $200. Thanks. Your first guess was that I had the bird. What's your second guess? That you know where it is or where you can get it. You're not hiring me to murder or do burglary, but to get back the figure in some lawful way. Say, from a dame with red hair or a smooth, dangerous fat man. Oh, so you know. You must beware of them. They would stop at nothing. May may I have my pistol now? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'd forgotten it. Thank you. Now, Mr. Spade, you will kindly clasp your hands behind your neck. What the... Don't move, Mr. Spade. <laughs> this time I might shoot. I insist on searching your office. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. finally got rid of the Greek and started back for Bridget O'Shaughnessy's apartment. Matter of fact, I had a hunch that the Greek was going there himself and started to tail his cab when a sad-faced guy poked something into my back and said, Come on. The fat man wants to see you. Here he is, Mr. Gutman. 
The guy who was talking to the dame in the Greek. Ah, Mr. Spade. Mr. Gutman? We begin well, sir. I distrust a man who talks too much. I like to talk. Of course, talking's something you can't do judiciously, unless you keep in practice. Yeah. Now, sir, we'll talk, if you like. And I'll tell you right out that I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. Swell. Will we talk about the blackbird? You're the man for me, sir. No beating about the bush, right to the point. Let us talk about the blackbird by all means. Mr. Spade, have you any conception of how much money can be got for that blackbird? No. Well, sir, if I told you, if I told you half, you'd call me a liar. No, no, not even if I thought so. But you just tell me what it is, and I'll figure out the profits. You mean you don't know what that bird is? Well, I know what it's supposed to look like. I know the value in human life you people put on it. Mr. O'Shaughnessy didn't tell you what it is? And Cairo didn't either? He offered me 10000 for it. 10000 <laughs> And dollars, mind you, not even pounds. They must know what it is. Or do they? What is your impression? I can't tell. They're both lying. If they don't know, I'm the only one in the whole white, sweet world who does. Swell. When you've told me, that'll make two of us. Mathematically correct, sir. But I don't know for certain that I'm going to tell you. Oh, don't be foolish. You know what it is, I know where it is. That's why I'm here. Well, sir, where is it? <laughs> don't be silly. You see, I must tell you what I know, but you will not tell me what you know. That is hardly equitable, sir. No, no. I don't think we can do business along those lines. Yeah, well, think, think again and think fast. I can get along without you and keep that gunsel, gunsel away from me while you're making up your mind. I'll kill him. Well, sir, I must say you the most violent temper. Well, what are you wasting time for? You've got till 5.30. Then you're either in or out for keeps. Three characters and a black bird. Well, all I knew was my partner was dead and the cops were getting very uncooperative about the whole thing, including who killed Floyd.